Excellency, it is indeed my honour to welcome you again to Fiji. At the Grand Pacific Hotel in Suva, the welcome ceremony for the Pacific Island Forum leaders marks their first face-to-face meeting in three years. Please uh, consider yourselves at home and amongst uh, family this week with us. Host, Fiji President Frank Bainimarama, gets straight to the point. The region faces its biggest challenges. He calls them the three deadly seas. Friends, we thus find ourselves in the crossfire of these three seas, three deadly seas, COVID, climate and conflict, each factor dangerously compounding the other. That is the inescapable reality of the situation. There's a lot of talk about unity and the importance of the Pacific family, but missing from the lineup of leaders on the stage are the heads of the Cook Islands, Nauru, Marshall Islands, and crucially, Kiribati. Kiribati dropped a bombshell by pulling out of the 51-year-old organisation. The Kiribati complete withdrawal dealing the biggest body blow. Regional unity is now under threat. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. Today on The Detail, the 2050 strategy for the Blue Pacific Continent is signed. But just how meaningful is it without a united front and when geopolitics grabs the headlines? You, you have these superpowers that are, are fighting for influence in the region, and yet we have countries like Tuvalu fighting for our existence. We're on totally different wavelengths. I talked to Tuvalu's Foreign Minister Simon Kofi, who famously hit headlines last year when he made a speech to the Glasgow Climate Summit knee-deep in the sea. But first, let's hear from newsroom Sam Satchdeva and Suva about the strategy. And just a note, the phone and internet connections with Fiji are a little dicey. It's setting out the challenges, major challenges for the region over the coming decades, out to 2050 and saying, How will we as the Pacific collectively deal with those, you know, climate change, security issues, uh, fishery stocks, geopolitical manoeuvrings? I mean, yeah, the thing is, there's a lot of talk about the Pacific family and unity, but you get there and it's not, there isn't that same unity. I mean, there's there's been such a big build-up because these um, Pacific leaders haven't had this face-to-face forum for three years. I mean, I mean, I suppose it is like a real family in that sense, right? Families squabble and they have fallings out. I guess the test will be like a real family, whether they can patch those up. So it has been really hard, and a lot of the leaders and politicians I've talked to have mentioned that fact, that... You know, we've had several years where we haven't been able to get together face-to-face. That's such an important part of Pacific diplomacy. So, you know, that that has exacerbated, I think, some of the problems we have seen and the divisions between some Pacific countries, the fact that they haven't been able to sit around a table and, you know, hash out their differences. Why is the forum so important? I think there is as with any regional organisation, strength in numbers, but it's probably particularly true for the Pacific region. You know, we have a, you have a number of small countries, the likes of Tuvalu, Palau, uh, with, with populations, you know, in the tens of thousands, so smaller than a, you know, a mid-sized New Zealand city. So that ability to speak with one voice and to say, 
you know, look, here is our united position. This is how we feel. And let's advocate on this to, you know, others in the world who are more powerful, perhaps more able to support us. I think that has real value to the Pacific. You have covered a number of leaders' forums, Sam. Does Is this one any different Yes, this is my first Pacific Islands forum, but I have been to a number of APEC summits, East Asia summits. Things things are a little bit more, uh, let, let's say, relaxed or fluid here. They talk, there's a lot of talk about Pacific time. Let's not let's not sit on these rigid schedules. I mean, the other issue is, I think the the forum organisers have have really been overwhelmed by the interest in this year's forum. Given the geopolitical manoeuvrings, you know, I think there's about 180 journalists we've been told here. I, I don't know if, if every last one of those has turned up to collect their passes, but unprecedented interest and super is really heaving with people who are here to sort of keep their eyes on, on what is happening in the Pacific. 180, and, and they're from all around the world or mostly New Zealand and Australia? The large bulk are from Australia and New Zealand. But, you know, look, I'm, I believe China have got some of their state media here. I know there are Japanese broadcasters. Uh, I've heard talk about an American presence. So, you know, it, it is fairly cosmopolitan in terms of different uh, nationalities who, who are here to see events unfold. How would you describe the atmosphere there, given all this attention, and given the geopolitical tensions that are going on at the moment, the worries about China's growing presence in the region and, and you know, this talk of it, its ability to splinter relationships. You know, there, there is a sort of sobering atmosphere here. Frank Bainimarama, the Fijian Prime Minister, the Forum Chair, Henry Puna, the Secretary General of the Forum, both said there are some very serious challenges for the region, both in the short term and the long term. Our common challenges have never been more serious, and the world's focus on our region has never been more intense. So I, I don't think people are mincing words about the scale of the challenge, but having said that, there, there is optimism, I think, and you know, we talked about family at the start, that family perspective, and I think there is hope that actually you know, some of the events we've seen, this US-China competition, will actually bind the Pacific more closely together rather than pulling it apart. It remains to be seen whether that will be the case. But, you know, I do think there are a lot of leaders here who hope that is how things will play out. And what sort of reception have New Zealand and Australia got through all of this? Because they have been criticised over the last few years for really not giving the region much attention. Look, I think you need to separate out Australia and New Zealand simply because of the age of the respective governments. You know, uh, Jacinda Ardern, this is her fifth Pacific Islands Forum, I think, and her third in person. So she is a known quantity in the region, and she's been very warmly received. Uh, there have been a number of announcements here around uh, climate. New Zealand has announced $10 million in climate change funding at the annual Pacific Islands Forum Leaders Meeting in Suva. Uh, age, uh, gender, equity, work. Today I'm pleased that we're actually here to launch and announce uh, New Zealand's significant five-year commitment to value of $12.65 million to gender and social protection. And it's titled Marama Neviti. And look, I, you know, the bilateral she's had so far with uh, Frank Bainimarama, 
with Manasseh Sogavare from the Solomon Islands. Jacinda Ardern has met with Manasseh Sogavare face-to-face for the first time since the Solomons signed a security treaty with China. Ms Ardern says she reiterated to Mr Sogavare it would be helpful to have greater transparency on the agreement. It seems to have been a very warm reception. Uh, you know, with Australia, as I say, you know, they've got a new government, a new prime minister who's coming in and, and promising to do things differently. I sort of listened in on his uh, first media conference yesterday with the Australian journalists and he said, I'm here to bring a positive attitude. I'm, I'm here to listen. We quite clearly uh, said that we had a Pacific step up. Uh, I described uh, the uh, what occurred earlier this year as a Pacific stuff-up, that we hadn't paid enough attention. And I know that the Biden administration has said that as well. So he's trying to frame it as a a new slate. Um, I think the Pacific leaders are are welcoming that, but I guess it remains to be seen whether they'll follow through on that that rhetoric. Kiribati's withdrawal, why is it such a, a crushing blow? I think in part because there was hope uh, the forum had resolved these issues. You know, this time last year, we were looking at all five Micronesian states withdrawing. There were these crisis talks in Suva last month, led by Bani Marama with the Micronesian leaders, and they seemed to reach an agreement that uh, everyone was happy with. So it's come out of the blue to an extent. It, it sounds like there had been the deterioration and the sort of week heading up to the forum in terms of engagement from Kiribati with the other leaders. But, uh, you know, certainly... I think it took people by surprise. And there is a strategic element here, right? Which is if, you know, the more members that jump, jump out of the forum, uh, the more vulnerable it becomes. So, yes, it, it might just be Kiribati for now, but does the start other states moving? Do, do others look to move out? And what does that mean in terms of how great powers like the US and, and China engage with the region? So, you're right, a fairly small country, but it's, it's whether there's a sort of domino effect that, that follows now. Prime Ministers and Presidents, Mr. Secretary General, distinguished guests, I'm honoured to be able to be with you today, virtually though it may be. Kamala Harris and her address. The United States will launch the process to establish two new embassies in the region. One in Tonga, one in Kiribati. We will also appoint the first ever United States envoy to the Pacific Islands Forum. Did that kind of disrupt the whole flow of things? To some people I've talked to, they did see it as a significant disruption. There is a reason why non-members usually don't uh, engage with the forum until the end of the week. They cancelled that observer's dialogue this year because they, uh, you know, in part, I think they wanted to avoid the distractions that come with having some of the big players in town. Uh, you know, her speech was welcomed very strongly by Frank Marama, by Henry Puna. Uh, so there are certainly people who are were very keen to see her speak and to see the commitments from the US. But uh, there are others who see it as a disruption and, and a distraction. There, there is simply a, yeah, a risk that the more time the nation spend talking about geopolitics and dealing with geopolitics, the less time they have to dedicate themselves to to climate action, to fisheries action, and all the other pressing issues for the region. Sam, when we talk about geopolitics, what does it mean when they talk about the security of the region and some of these countries switching their allegiance to 
to China and then the US coming in. I mean, what is the big worry here? You can go back to World War Two. You know, the Pacific was a, a theatre of conflict, as they say. So there were military bases on islands. There were skirmishes in the area. So I guess the fear is a repeat of that, that, you know, if uh, countries switch to the uh, CCP, to China, Will the Chinese try and set up military bases here? Will that lead to an American response? And what does it mean if you have a bunch of warships, aircraft, potentially missiles that are, uh, you know, all of a sudden on the doorstep of your country? So that that, that is the, the fear. Whether or not it comes to pass, I don't know, but that's what keeps some people awake at night. And so unity is, is such an important thing here? A- absolutely. And, you know, I think some foreign policy experts, I saw Anna Poles from uh, Massey University say, uh, if you can peel off a member of the forum, if, if that's China, if they can have a country in the Pacific that is not a member there, and is perhaps more open to working with alternative uh, mechanisms, perhaps led by China, then, then that is a risk. So I, I think that is the, the importance of unity, as you say. It's keeping everyone together and speaking with one voice rather than splintering off into different factions. And you mentioned that there were Chinese media there. And China, the government also has a, a presence there? Yes, yeah, there's a Chinese embassy in Fiji, and there was a bit of a kerfuffle yesterday during the vice president's speech. Uh, there were apparently a couple of Chinese officials in the room, defense attaches, who were uh, identified and asked to leave. Uh, I, I believe they, uh, it's not quite clear whether they had any credentials, uh, and so whether they should have been in the venue at all or simply they weren't in the, in the right place. So I, I didn't see this unfold firsthand. We've heard about it after the fact. But uh, look, they are here, they are keeping a keen eye on proceedings and and they'll continue to do so. Is there any discussion that since Kamala Harris got to have a say at the forum, should China also get to have a say? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I think it's an open question. Uh, There is one school of thought that says actually, yes, China might look to put pressure on the the forum and on the countries and say, look, you've let the US do this. Why can't we take part? The other is they actually use this to say, you know, look, you asked us to stay away and we respected that and we will do it. It's the US that's coming in and messing things up. It's disrupting your meeting with their grand commitments, but we're going to play by your rules. So it could sort of go one of one of two ways. And I haven't seen yet a formal response from the Chinese government. I'm sure there will be one coming or stories on, on Chinese state media talking about uh, the vice president's speech and the and the reaction to it. Well, shortly after we spoke, the China state media Global Times ran a story criticising the US's rush into the Pacific as a bid to contain China, not to help in the region's development. But let's get to Simon Coffey's take on the forum. Uh, I think it's going very well. Very robust discussions about uh, geopolitics, climate change, and, and obviously the the civil agreement to bring uh, all the members back to the to the table again. How do you feel about Kiribati and other countries not being there? You know, we're, we're, we're quite saddened that uh, Kiribati has, has uh, made that decision. I think it caught some of the members by surprise that uh, Kiribati went to the extent of withdrawing from, from the forum. From Tuvalu's perspective, we, we need to keep the door open for Kiribati and uh, need to, to, to look at the concerns that they have raised and uh, find ways to to, um, to move forward. 
Kamala Harris speaking at the forum from a distance. It seems there's been a lot of focus on her and her speech and also this tussle that's going on between China and the US over their influence in the Pacific. I mean, has this been frustrating for you? Do you you feel this overshadows or even overwhelms any kind of moves on climate action? Yeah, it it does draw a bit of attention away from from climate change. Um, And and I think if you view it from our perspective, you you have these superpowers that are, are fighting for influence in the region. And yet we have countries like Tuvalu fighting for our existence. And so we, we're on totally different wavelengths and it's important for the Pacific to, to remain focused and, and to continually advocate for, for stronger climate action from, from these big countries because climate change is an issue that can't be resolved by one region. It needs everyone on the table, uh, especially China and US that are some of the biggest emitters in the world right now. Because Simon, you made such an impact last year. I mean, you made world headlines when you gave that speech to the COP26 um, climate summit in Glasgow. You were knee deep in sea. In Tuvalu, we are living the realities of climate change, sea level rise, as you stand watching me today at COP26. We cannot wait for speeches when the sea is rising around us all the time. Trying to show what climate change is actually doing on the front line. Then you were nominated for the Nobel Prize. So, you know, do you feel that's made any difference? Well, the, 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 the COP26 outcomes uh, did not really meet the, the expectations, at least from Tuvalu and the Pacific's uh, point of view. You know, we, we're, we're fighting for 1.5 uh, degrees, but yet scientists are telling us that even with the uh, COP26 commitments, we're still looking at 2.4, 2.6 uh, increase, uh, which basically means that um, countries like Tuvalu may not be around in the next 50 to uh, 100 years. And what about the forum? I mean, what, what results from this do you want to take back? What kind of messages do you, do you want to take home? Well, we're, we're pushing for greater unity in the Pacific on, on issues of climate change. Uh, Tuvalu has also been advocating for a stronger stance on uh, the issue of statehood. You may or you may not know this, but we've, we've been uh, looking at a worst-case scenario for Tuvalu uh, where we could disappear. And we're looking at legal avenues now to secure the permanency of our statehood, regardless of the, the impacts of climate change in the, in the future. The forum uh, did come up with the, a declaration uh, last year a declaration on our maritime zones, uh, but Tuvalu now is pushing that we go beyond that and come up with a stronger uh, declaration on our statehood as well. What would that mean, Simon? It, it means that we would still secure, because under international law, you need a physical territory to, to be a state. Mm. And we've never had it in the history of the world, a country disappear because of, of, of climate change. And so this is a new area that is not accommodated under international law. But one way to contribute to the formation of new uh, customary uh, international law is, is when more states recognize these principles. And so we, we've been doing that on a bilateral level, affirming relations with our diplomatic uh, friends. And uh, in our joint communiques, they are recognizing the permanency of our statehood and our claims as well to our maritime zones, uh, regardless of the impacts of, of climate change. So it's, it is a future-looking uh, initiative. And uh, our hope is that the Pacific can get behind that as well. How confident are forum leaders that 
they will be able to reunite, I suppose, bring Kiribati back into the fold? There, there is a lot of optimism, uh, perhaps not in the short term. Certainly with Kiribati, uh, the view is that they are, they are not taking calls at the moment. They're not talking to anyone. So it, it's hard to know where, where they are at and, and you know, what could change their minds. But I think in the longer term, the view is that Kiribati needs the forum as much as the forum needs Kiribati. This is the, the sort of peak body in the region. Uh, there is value in having a seat at the table and influencing how the Pacific approaches things. So, uh, you know, it might might take some time, but, you know, this time last year, we were looking at all five Micronesian states leaving and four of them are now back and, and fully in the fold. So, you know, a year's time from now, uh, things might look totally different. We haven't even talked about discussions over climate or the fisheries, which are also two key things. The security issue really just kind of sucks the sucks the air out, doesn't it? That, that, and that is the problem, that the more time you spend talking about which super, superpower is doing what and how each country is responding, the, the less time you have to deal with the, the probably the most existential threat for the region. And there is frustration from Pacific leaders, I think, that you know, uh, New Zealand media, we come in, Australian media, foreigners, uh, and, and spend all our time talking about power plays and, and not enough about climate action. So there are some some big issues. Vanuatu has been pushing uh, the, the forum to support uh, its call for an opinion from the International Court of Justice on climate change. So the idea is that that would set some sort of legal precedent, uh, make clear what the obligations are for countries, um, deep sea mining. Uh, you know what is what is the approach on that? Do can the Pacific support a moratorium across the region, or is that going to be an issue? Given that there are some countries who would like to mine in their CBs, these are huge issues. What What's your feeling, Sam? When you you know when you leave, what what would be your? I mean, it seems it's. It's had so much attention this forum. Usually, it doesn't get this much attention, does it? Is that is that good? Uh, yeah, I, I think it could go two ways. I mean, there is going to be a lot of attention that will remain, and there are there are benefits for that. And you know, Jacinda Ardern said when she was talking about climate change and, and whether Australia and New Zealand would start fighting each other to provide more aid. Competition is great when it comes to that. That's the one area where you want a lot of uh, fighting, I guess, to to do more. So that could work out quite well for the Pacific. And and the, the countries here have shown they are quite adept at uh, you know using some of this uh, political uh, manoeuvring from from the great powers from other countries to to get what they want. And what they want is climate funding and climate action. So that that could be useful. The the downside is, yeah, w- what happens if we see uh, China continuing to to uh, sign security agreements? There is uh, this regional agreement that they were working on that's been parked for now, but I'm sure they'll come back to that at some point. And you know, what does it mean if there is a militarization, a sort of hardening uh, of the uh, diplomatic? Uh, mood mood in the region. So, you know, there are some positive aspects of, of being in the spotlight, but there are areas of risk as well. 
That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by William Saunders and produced by Mark Jennings. And our associate producer is Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Simon Coffey and Sam Satchdeva. Mā te wā.